What's up, guys? Ted Jones World Podcast. We're doing it virtually today. It's been a minute since we've done anything virtually like this. But we have all the way from Nashville, Tennessee, author of You Can Get There From Here, tennis legend Barry Buss. What's up, man? How's everything going? Hey, thanks for having me on, man. Why don't you kind of just preface everything and, uh, you know, even just talking about from the beginning of the book and your life and meeting Patrick McEnroe, uh, let's get to it, man. You know, I grew up in the, during the tennis boom of the 1970s and uh, when not, when nobody knew a whole lot of anything about uh, tennis development or, or child development or anything like that, uh, I just had a rather tumultuous uh, junior career where, you know, I had a, I had one of these over the top parents at the time who was dedicated to uh, making sure his kids had a little bit more of a life than he did. And uh, so when it came to, you know, he never had these opportunities when he was younger. So when, when he saw that I had some skill in, in tennis and stuff, he, you know, he got all in on my tennis. And uh, so the story kind of took off. I was, you know, kind of grew up in lazy New England and uh, not a whole lot was happening. And we moved out to Southern California when I was about 14. And at that time, uh, it was kind of ground zero for American tennis. It was just everybody, you know, Robert Lansdorp and Tracy Austin and all these kind of famous icons from that period were there. And I got thrown into the middle of all this. And uh, lo and behold, right in the middle of it, I got real good and uh, proceeded to go on to Junior Davis Cup and UCLA and setting some records there. But all the while, I had a, I was had an undiagnosed mental health disorder that uh, that was going on that I dangerously started to self-medicate at around age 14. And that I wasn't help, properly diagnosed until I was 37. Um, and so that's what my book is about, is that that long, tumultuous story from uh, from my first drink to my last drink, um, which was March 10th of 2012. And as we just talked about, I just celebrated 11 years of sobriety last month and uh, really proud, you know, very happy to be here and being able to talk about all this stuff. Do you think that having such a successful junior career, would people say that being that good at tennis that early, that there's something different about this kid, whether it's a, something in a positive light or a negative light. Is that something that you'd see? You know, it's, it, it can, what it can do is it can mask a lot of things. I think, you know, one of the things I, you know, I started getting high real, you know, almost daily when I was 14, but no one really, but there were no signs that I was doing it. And I was able to get, you know, get straight A's in school because, you know, school came easy. I was managing to kind of stay in the middle of the pack tennis wise. I wasn't, you know, number one in the country or anything like that, drawing a lot of attention to myself, but I wasn't falling off either. So, so it was easy to kind of just keep, uh, you know, no one asked a lot of questions because on many levels I was excelling, but at the same time, internally, I was struggling mightily and, you know, I wasn't doing the things you know, to, to, you know, to build the last more or less to make this thing go all the way. When you decided to go to UCLA, you had a half ride and then you had an offer from Berkeley, I believe for a full ride. Right. What right. was it? Why was there such a disconnect between you only getting a half ride in tennis and then winning 22 straight matches like that well doesn't happen, let, that doesn't let, happen in any sport you know what I mean? let, let, let's just put it this way ucla was the uh, defending ncaa champions and they were loaded and i was the last guy on my recruiting class and we had jim Pugh and will and borg and a bunch of other guys who were you know perennial top five in the country guys so i was the i was low man on the totem pole when i came in i think we had 12 guys on the team i was probably 12 when we started but uh coach had a real fair system there where you know if you won you moved up you lost, you moved down. So I managed to make it through the fall and the challenge matches. And when it came time to set the lineup, you know, he gave me the chance at number six. And then, uh, you know, I managed to not lose and just stay, you know, stay the course and won my first 22 matches. And before I knew it, I was playing number one as a freshman and <laughs> couldn't have been more uncomfortable if I had to be. Yeah, insane, dude. Because like, that, that happens, you see it in a basketball and football. But these days, if you're the number 12th 
guy on the team day one like there's no shot in eight weeks you'd be number one did you really want to go pro before i guess it was roy emerson was the first one to really give you your props right was there like you know once you're yeah once you know coming out southern california you're you're surrounded by tennis royalty i mean you know playing anthony emerson and you know in the juniors and i'm watching his father there and, and you know and having him worrying about me i was like oh my god roy emerson is worried about me <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like like i really arrived here um you know and there was numerous other you know kind of legacy uh families in, in southern california at the time the shays and you know all kinds you can go right down the list um you know it, it, you know i never back then no one really even thought about going pro you know we were just kind of doing our junior tennis thing and and you know it wasn't really yeah, I, I mean, I think back on talking with my guys and stuff, we never really, it wasn't really a conversation we had. I was going to college, it was a big deal, you know, obviously excelling in the juniors and so forth. But once you start getting a little taste of it, you know, I had a few dips in there and I beat some guys who had world rankings and, you know, that were, you know, there were players. And I was like, okay, you know, I can, I can compete at this level. Now, can I train at this level? Can I, I knew I could play with these guys, but, you know, but I, could I do the, the lifestyle, which is, you know, the sacrifice that it takes to, to be a professional tennis player and the travel and they're just enduring all the 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 ups and downs of the life could could i did i have the emotional stability and strength to do that and i you know i found out pretty quickly i did not but being on the being on the junior davis cup team you saw probably what it took you know when you had all those juniors next to you who wanted to be pros was there something in you being like i'm better than all these guys or were you just kind of not your mind wasn't really focused on the tennis yeah, so it was kind of a weird uh, dynamic. I never had a coach. You know, I was completely self-taught, which was, you know, kind of very rare for back in that time. Now, for, I was very fortunate to be in California where there's so many guys to practice with. You know, we just crack a can of balls and just get at it. So so in a weird kind of convoluted way, I kind of took, took some weird pride in, in getting to that level by myself. You know, everyone else had their teams and their parents and all the support system around them. And I was just kind of winging it. And I'd go play my couple sets and go get high and just do my thing. And, and at the same time, I was able to hang with these guys. But at the same time, you could tell the the great ones were just a little different. They were a little more focused. They were a little more serious about it. You know, and I, it was always a challenge for me. Like, am I one of these guys? You know, because they just seemed to take it. You know, they had been great for a long time. I was I was a late bloomer, you know, and though I could play with these guys and beat them you know, periodically and stuff. Was I one of them? There was always that. What, what were the, what was the kind of stuff that those guys were doing off court that you maybe weren't focusing on? There was this, uh, I think I tell the story in the junior Davis cup tryouts where my first day out there, I had to, you know, just, you know, it was brutal. You have, you know, you have conditioning in the morning and then you do two, two out of three set matches. And then there's another conditioning afterwards. And, you know, after one day of this, I played a couple long three setters the first day and, and I, and I go, go eat and I can barely walk back to my room. And then at the corner of my, around the building, I hear this company cracking balls. I'm like, it was dark and the lights were on. I'm like, Ooh, who is it? It was the guy I played in the morning, you know, and he had another three setter. He's here. He is late at night and he's out there still grinding. I'm like, wait a minute. Are these guys, do they want it more than me? Am I, am I, is there something off with me? Cause I had never seen guys that dedicated to it. So there was, there were levels of commitment to it. You know, the kind of the mini me professionals that, uh, that marveled me. So, it was, but there was a lack of imbalance or lack of balance in that life. You know, not that I was some kind of Renaissance man at the time, but I had other interests outside side of just just playing tennis all the time and it seemed you know it seemed the guys who were just a little bit more focused and all in on the tennis seemed to be able to see it through a little bit longer than those of us who got you know distracted by west la in the 1980s (laughs) what was the tipping point where you think you were like all right i'm super distracted here i need to get back into ucla tennis or what you were hanging with the wrong crowd in la yeah, I mean, you know, so I kind of grew up in a real kind of middle class, you know, engineers, you know, child of engineers, very, very kind of simple 
simple way of life. But then all of a sudden I started meeting a whole bunch of guys up in West LA and, you know, it's kind of famous film families. And it was just a whole new world to me. And I, and it was, you know, then all of a sudden my, after my first year at UCLA, I started teaching in one of the Saudi Arabian princes, you know, the Saudi Arabian royalty up at their houses in Beverly Hills. And you know, I'm 18 years old and I'm going to Rolls Royce. And I'm going, <laughs> no, it's just crazy. So, so you see that and it, you know, it's, it's, it pulls at you a little bit, you know, it's good. Yeah, I want to have a couple, couple cross courts or I want to, you know, get in the rolls and go to Tahoe with the prince, you know? And so you balance those things out and, um, you know, without a whole lot of guidance, you know, I was doing this all by myself. I didn't have anybody kind of trying to guide me to like, listen, you've got a lot of, you got a potential here. You, that stuff's not going anywhere. If you can just kind of put it aside for a little bit, that will all be there for you when you finish your career. But I just couldn't, you know, just, I, you know, in my little grandiosity, I, I thought maybe I could do it all that I was different there, but I could party like a rock star. Cause I had been doing it, you know, throughout high school, I, I got away with it. But then when I got to college and you know, I was no longer impervious to the the negative effects of drugs and alcohol. It started to reel me in and there was just no way to do both. To jump ahead a little bit, talking about always kind of being on yourself, there were times when you went missing. Did you feel yourself like you were missing? You know, focused on if it's finding the meth for that day or maybe alcohol. What, what's the mindset of waking up and- Yeah, you know, it's, you're not terribly present. Let's just put it that way. You know, you don't, um, it's almost like being taken over in many ways, you know, addiction, just take just your, your, your ability to make good quality choices, not just for yourself, but for those who, who care about you too, whether they're clients or family or loved ones. Um, you know, that just gets, it just gets slowly eroded where you're just no longer weighing out the, you know, if I'm going to go do this, there are consequences and people are going to be concerned and left hanging and stuff. You just don't, you, that, that's not even entering your mind anymore. If that is entering your mind, you, you don't do what, you know, you don't do those things. So the only way you can continue to live in the addictive style is to be able to, to block all that part of the, your life out and not feel what you're doing to others and, and particularly yourself. You know that you're slowly, you know, you're slowly killing yourself with these substances. And um, if you know, if you were actually president knew exact thought about what you were doing with yourself, you know, you there'd be a chance you wouldn't do it. But the only way to continue to do that is just to be in complete denial about what you're doing to yourself and others. Do you think that marijuana was a gateway drug for you? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think once you kind of cross that Rubicon where you know, there, there's a taboo. I think when you're younger, you're, there's a do's, there's do's and don'ts. Don't do this. Don't do that. And then well, especially growing up kind of when you were growing up and the coaches telling you that this is, this is an issue. Do you have a problem when yeah. if you were drinking wine when you're 21 years old, after you win a match at UCLA, it might not be considered a problem. Right. Right. So, so, I mean, I, I even, you know, even today, the taboo on, on drugs and illegal drugs, it, you know, it's always in your mindset that you're doing something that you shouldn't be doing. And so that part but once you, you know, once you cross that line and you, you realize, okay, my, I, you know, my life didn't fall apart. Oh, this is actually quite enjoyable. You know, you wouldn't do it if it wasn't enjoyable. And I really like the way this made me feel, um, particularly myself having an undiagnosed mental health condition. This became my self-medication, you know, was, I was your self-medication, sorry, don't mean to interrupt. Was your self-medication, you think initially tennis escaping, teaching something to yourself and you were so proud that you were able to get to such a high level just by yourself. You're like, well, I think, I've done it, I everything think the, before, so I can do everything myself. I think in the beginning, that's where, you know, that it was my safe place. I think, you know, I, if I could, that was the one place where I could go out there and feel good about myself and get validation. And, you know, whether it be through winning or playing well or, and so forth, that was the one little spot in my life where I felt I had some control 
over what was going on. But then once I found drugs and alcohol at 14, you know, that just changed my, it just changed my whole existence. And my, it was like, my life was in black and white and it just went to technicolor. I mean, all of a sudden I was charming and tall and funny and, you know, all the things I never felt. I was so hyper self-conscious and all of a sudden the world just kind of changed for me that day. And I said, okay, no, this, this is something I'm going to play around with for a little while because this, it was the first time I actually really felt good, comfortable in my skin. Um, you know, lo and behold, it was, you know, it was, I was self-medicating a, a rather serious mental health disorder at the time. So I did not know at the time. So was there a particular, you may have uh, said this in the book, but was there a particular match that you can remember when you were like 16 or 17 years old, where you were legitimately drunk and you still won and everybody was proud of you and you were like, I can do whatever I want. I'm you the know, king of the world. Yeah. So there's a little bit of that. I mean, I, I think I, uh, you get away with it a few times, not, not drunk. I mean, that, that would be extreme, but I, w I was high a lot in high school and playing a lot of, a lot of kind of meaningless tennis, not the real tennis, you know, the serious tennis. I, I did my best to stay sober at those events, but um, you know, you get away with it a little bit. So that's how you rationalize, you know, the whole game of, of addiction is just one constant rationalization. You know, if, if my life was falling apart, then I would have to address my, you know, my behavior, the, the consequences of the behaviors that I was engaging in. So the fact that I was still getting straight A's and still ranked pretty high and still being somewhat successful at that time, you know, I had a pretty good defense to against any argument that maybe I was harming myself. How was your relationship with your family in between the years that you were not sober, you were playing tennis a little bit more to try and get back your old glory? What, what was your relationship like with your parents? Yes, it was always complicated with them, you know, once, um, you know, one of the things when you're younger, you don't realize that your parents actually have lives and they have their own, you know, marriage to deal with and their careers and other children and their own personal interests and stuff. So you think you're the center of their, their universe. And at some point in my parents, you know, when we got out to California and their lives were very busy themselves and working full time, you know, they, we weren't the full focus of their lives. So in many ways, what may have felt like neglect or abandonment in many ways, they were just, you know, they just got kind of tired of, they might have gotten a little tired of parenting us all the time. You know, they they raised three boys and you were kind of, you know, typical fighting brothers all the time and stuff. And they, they just needed a little break. So we, you know, but there wasn't a whole lot of communication there between us about what was going on and stuff. So they were, so the support was always hot and cold. My dad would be all in. And then, you know, when it got a little too, too much for me, he would just withdraw and pull back and, you know, and just leave me to myself to kind of do it myself. And um, so the, the, the in and out of, of the support and the in and out of the, just kind of the emotional you know, guidance really more than anything else. I never really had any guidance. Like, you know, hey, listen, you got a chance to be really good at this. Yeah. Instead, well, instead did, of putting... did, did you have friends though, who you were competing with at that particular time, whether it was like a year before UCLA, UCLA, we're like, all right, this guy, Barry Buss is going to be a problem. He's going to be a top 25 player. Did you have right. people feeding that information to you? To a point, but we were all in the same boat. You know, we were all, we were all just going at it. You know, there was never anything. I, I wasn't any separate from anybody else. I mean, we, I was just one of the, one of the good guys in, in Southern California that would just go out every weekend and just do battle with everybody. So it wasn't, I wasn't any, anything, any kind of prodigy above and beyond anybody else. I mean, these guys were, you know, spectacular in their own life. But at the same token, I was in the group of kids who all went on to have fantastic careers and, and we all knew, you know, we all knew we, we had game. We all knew we had potential. We were all going to, you know, explore the college experience to our, you know, and play it out and um, and then just see where the chips fall. We kept, you know, developing, you know, uh, athletically and so forth. So who was the best guy you were training with at that particular time? 
Oh, my, my average week, you know, I mean, honestly, I would play with like Jorge Lozano from Mexico and up winning the French Open. He would be, you know, he played at my club. He came up to live at our, in our, in our area. Kelly Jones, Jim Pugh, another former number one in the world. Todd Witzkin moved out to California. He was another top five in the world player, um, you know, on and on and on. I mean, it was just Eric Amon, uh, John Letts, who won Kalamazoo, um, John Davis, you know, it just, it was spectacular levels. Of- yeah. I want to, I would, you mentioned Kalamazoo. I want to talk about your experience at Kalamazoo. I, I unfortunately never had the opportunity to go there. And even still to this day, I'll watch zoo tennis clips on YouTube. So what was your experience like at Kalamazoo? For those of you who don't know, it's the Mecca of tennis for 18 and unders. If you win the national championship in 18 and unders, you actually yeah, get a so- card into the U S open. So, you know, it's, it was such a mysterious place. It's kind of the place with the funny name. And uh, my father and I used to go through all the USTA yearbooks when I was a little kid. You know, we'd sit, stay up late and go through all the results and go over the players and stuff. And we always would go to, it would always end up at Kalamazoo. You know, the whole big deal was to make it to Kalamazoo, you know. And, and uh, so I had, there was this one tough scene in the, in the book with my father where um, we had kind of, we had parted ways when I was about 15. And stuff. I was a second year, 16, and he had kind of said, you got to do this on your own. And so I played that entire year on my own. I was hitchhiking to tournaments, I had to get a job. It was just kind of crazy, but I qualified for Kalamazoo. You know, I made it top 10 in Southern California and I got my acceptance list, but I, I needed some help. I needed them to sign off, you know, because I was still a minor and stuff. And I just remember sitting down asking my dad for permission you know, to go to Kalamazoo, you know, this is like the thing. And, and he, and he said, no, because you know, I didn't think I had done enough that year. And, and it was a tough situation for us. Cause you know, I, I, I kind of, you know, I thought I'd done enough. I was, you know, 15 years old doing this on my own and qualified for Kalamazoo, which was kind of like the whole thing. But uh, but then a couple years later, when I was on Junior Davis Cup team, we went there and it was a real, you know, real honor to be there. We were there with our USA jackets and, you know, getting treated like rock stars. And, uh, you know, it's it's a special place. It was special then. It's still special now. They've managed to hold on to it. And I understand why, you know. What's your relationship been with people who you used to play tennis with? You know, uh, still really good. Yeah, really, really good. I mean, there's still some of my closest friends. I mean, Kelly Jones, I just saw Jim Pugh out in California. I just talked to Jonathan Cantor the other day. These guys I grew up with. You felt played. like these guys were all a good influence on you. I mean, well, were there we were certain all, people that were a bad influence on you at that particular time? You know, we were all, everyone was kind of doing our thing. You know, it wasn't like, you know, there were very few choir boys in my circle. So I just happened to be, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just happened to be a little bit over and above. I'm not going to mention any names or, or behaviors, but um well, you bro, know, it was also different back then, man. Like, you didn't have cameras all up in your face. No, we didn't. You know, kind of do whatever you want, as long as you can keep your eyes straight. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And Lynn Bias was still alive. And, you know, so nobody was all worried about all that stuff. And yeah. So things did change during our time. So, okay. but, you know, back in the, listen, I, I joke around, you know, talked to several guys who went to UCLA before me. It's like, God, you know, I mean, it was such a great experience being here. But West LA in the late 70s and early 80s, I mean, you just had to be there. It was just a unique place to be. And, and where was the, where was like the, where was the Studio 54, you'd say in LA? <laughs> what was that? What was the equivalent back there? There was a place called Voila. This is Voila. fantastic. So, so I'm like 18 years old. I'm running with the Saudi prince and we're taking limos everywhere. And I, Wait, know, and quickly, how did you guys, how did you link with the Saudi prince? So I, so after my freshman year of playing, I was so burned out. I needed to catch up on a little bit of schooling and all the guys on our team went to go play satellites and stuff. And, and it turned out there was a gentleman, Kelly Yunkerman, who was a coach like Kenny Rogers, kind of a coach to the stars. And he, he was coaching the, um, the the Saudis at the time, but he got a bit piece in this movie. So he had to be away that summer. So the Saudis called the coach of UCLA. Bassett called me, asked me, Hey, do you want to go wow. you know, I got this, this lead for you? And I was going to go teach, uh, 
I was going to be teaching like public course at my old high school for like six bucks an hour. <laughs> I had a job. I was getting ready to go, you know, metal nets and a bunch of, bunch of beginners. And next thing you know, I'm making 1500 a week, you know, in cash from the Saudis and, and I'm getting all my buddies jobs too. I mean, they, you know, we had three or four of them going at the time. So it was pretty, <laughs> pretty well. But anyway, so once, once I had those guys going, it was, um, you know, that lifestyle, you know, so I'm 18 and, you know, I'm going to all the fanciest clubs in town and, you know, sitting next to Raquel Welsh and just, you know, doing all kinds of fun things. So. What was your relationship with Patrick McEnroe? So Patrick and I, well, he, so he's a couple years younger than I am. So we knew of each other growing up and stuff. And obviously he went on to have his great career in tennis and, and in broadcasting. Um, so it kind of goes back a little bit when he was head of American player development. And there was this uh, kind of this Wayne Bryan email. I don't know if you caught wind of this thing. It was kind of the email that, that took over the tennis tennis world where he- Where is he? he I, haven't see, I haven't seen his presence in a while. Yeah, he's, been a little, Bob he's been quiet. Yeah, he's, he's calmed down a little bit. He's, he's probably getting a little bit older too. Okay. But, and, then, um, and I think the I think the boys stopped winning as many Grand they, Slams. Yeah, they're, so they're, they're on you know, their- I had my time, like LeVar they're in their They're in their post-career heroes. Anyway, so Wayne, Wayne puts this, bombs this email out. And so I actually, I think I coined him the, the tennis tea party. It was back about 210, 2010. <laughs> he was just angry to his pitchforks and riots and haystacks and and he was just so upset because you know american tennis had always had the next great player you know we just had this constant success from connors to mcenroe to agassi to sampras and we'd you know curry we'd always had that next guy then we had roddick and then then obviously the federer and, and those guys came around and, and things fell off pretty quickly for us and so we just didn't get that next champion so in the meantime we were investing all his money in player development and patrick was at the head of, of player development. So he started catching a lot of flack from the Wayne Bryan types in this email and that we're just throwing all this money away and we're not doing it right. So so I, I took a little umbrage to that. I said, you know, because the 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 I, I get the passion. It was a lot of, you know, I, yes, you're absolutely right. We have not developed the next champion. Now, is it Patrick's fault? What, this, what year was that, by the way? Very I'm going to go about 2010, 2011, something like that. Yeah. Um, and so I just, I, I'm completely on my own without even talking to Patrick. I just wrote a rather impassioned defense of, of Pat, not just Patrick, but American player development and kind of told Wayne to calm down a little bit. And so it got, it made some circulation, got published out there and stuff. And Patrick caught wind of it. He just reached out to me and said, Hey man, really thank you for, for doing that. You know, I, it was, you know, you didn't, you know, I just really appreciate you seeing this as it is and, and coming into my defense and stuff. And so we just developed a friendship back then. And, um, you know, just kind of, you know, just kept, you know, we just kept in touch. We text all the time. And when it came time for me to write my book, I said, you know, God, it'd be kind of cool if I could get him to do my forward. And as soon as I asked him, he, he just did it willingly. And, uh, yeah, it's been real good. Oh, man. And you, fi yeah, you finished this book, like you finished this less than a, less than a year ago, right? Yeah, so it came out. So the goal, the goal was, and it was about two years ago, I kind of really dug in, maybe two and a half years ago. Uh, the goal was to finish it and have it published on my 10 year sobriety anniversary of March 10th of 2022. So I managed, to, yeah, literally, managed to literally get it sent to my, delivered to my house on that day. So, oh, no. so it took about 18 months to do. Um, I literally, I could count on two hands how many days I took off. I would get up at 5.30 in the morning and just kind of go out to the living room table and get some coffee going and just start working on it. And, um, you know, it just, uh, just kind of took on a life of its own and, and it's kind of having a psychological plus one with you everywhere you're going, you're thinking about the book and, <laughs> you know, and how it's going to turn out, but it's been such an honor to have it be so well received. And, uh, when you put yourself out there like that, it's a little nerve wracking and totally, and, totally. But, I completely uh, understand, you know, especially coming from a, a guy who I took tennis very seriously as a junior, went to college, I played for, two years and there was just there was so much pressure all the time and we weren't even at a level like UCLA I just felt like does this match really matter it's taking so much from my college experience 
um, sleepless nights, nerves. Nice. And I definitely, I understand, man, the amount of times I went out binge drinking after a match, right. smoking weed. It was just right. it's a lot, it's a lot of pressure. So I, we were talking about, uh, just to go back, what you were saying about player development in America, you still very involved in the tennis world. Is there something that, um, I mean, now it looks like we're, we're pretty close to having a American champion. Hopefully within the next couple of years, we'll see a grand slam champion. Is there something specific that you think us Americans need to do on the tennis front <laughs> to improve? Well, like, what is, no. what is, what, what was Wayne Bryant talking about to Patrick McEnroe? You know, I think what he was, there was some misconceptions about what was going on down in, it wasn't even Orlando yet, but just at the main training centers and the, the fact that they were doing a centralized organization where they're taking kids from all around the country and trying to bring them together and taking them from their primary coaches and yada, yada, yada. And everyone's making too much money and yada, yada, yada. So that, listen, at, at some fundamental level, tennis is, tennis is played on the court. There's no secret sauce to this stuff. You know, whether you're in Mallorca and Spain or Switzerland and Federer or wherever you're doing your thing, it's on a court with a coach and a bunch of talented guys, a bunch of driven guys. And listen, genetics plays an enormous part in this. You've got to be, you know, if you look at the top three guys, you know, there's the three I just mentioned there. I mean, they're just different. They're physically different than than the American players that have come on in the last uh, last few generations. So um, so I don't think there's any anything we're doing wrong or anything doing differently culturally. I mean, we are we more comfortable than other countries? Are we not as hungry? I, you know, I, I can't really say that because our women have been fantastic. We've had Serena and Venus and uh, Hennon and we, you know we got right down the line. We got a bunch of Grand Slam champions on the women's side, Sloan Stevens. So so it's not just just because we haven't had the guy. Yeah, you know, and it and it also feels like Federer was the guy, and Nadal, just, Nadal you know, was the guy. Like so, there's a period of time where it's just those guys. Were there's there. no, there's no, yeah. And then throw Djokovic. Listen, if Djokovic was from Chicago or Federer was from LA or, or Nadal was from Miami, yeah. you think tennis would be more popular in America than ever? They just happen to be born somewhere else. And are you playing? Are you playing pickleball these days or what? We have we have pickleball here. It's right down there. Yeah, I'm on the. I, 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 ha I haven't played yet, but I watched on uh, YouTube the other day. What was it? Andy Roddick, Agassi, yeah. Michael Chang, and John McEnroe. Yeah. And I actually I watched it for like 15 minutes. I was impressed with myself. That's more, like, 15 right. more than I could. Yeah. No, that's yeah, not. Moving quick. I haven't I haven't drank the Kool Aid yet. I, I get it. It's super, <laughs> it's super fun. And yeah, I, but just, I don't want it to take away from tennis, man. No, no. I we no. I, I as long as I can continue to play tennis, we're going to keep doing that. But but back to what you were saying a second ago about the stress level, and this is kind of where my next project is you know one thing i get asked a lot <clears throat> about my book is you know what could have been done to to help me when i was younger could there were there things you know were there could people or situations been in place to help me out and you know and when i when i, when I answer that question is you know what happened to me was 40 years ago and nobody knew a lot of anything my parents my teachers my coaches certainly myself about addiction or, or mental health or wound disorders or any of that stuff but but what i'm hoping for is today you know we're 40 years past that and what's in place now are do we do we know more because if you think about mental health nowadays you know it's never been in the news more right where there's an awareness you can't open your the news without seeing some kind of headline of some yeah kind therapy of is in you know yeah no it's it's everywhere so we, you know we've never known more we've never been more aware we've never done more yet the numbers are terrible we're falling terribly behind right now and and every statistic is is alarming there's a teenage uh, mental health crisis you know announced by the surgeon general um, so what are we doing wrong? What, we're missing something here. Now there's some content, you know, some factors, obviously COVID social media, I mean, there's obvious things that I think the kids are struggling with, but right now, teenage levels of anxiety, depression, and those things are, are off the charts. So what I'm really trying to launch into now is my next project is called first ball to last, where I'm really trying to 
isolate the the causal effects of this so kind of what you said with stress i mean just just life in general is stressful right now but you then you add tennis to that on top of that and you know it's a that's a difficult mix so what we're really trying to figure out is can we can we set up a program of prevention really you know we you know genetics we can't control that and that there's certain things out of our life but environment plays a huge role in how we develop whether we have support whether we're in a stressful environment whether we're in a violent uh growing up in an environment with domestic violence or substance abuse those are very obvious problems but what can we control can we control the environment enough and our reaction to that environment and i really think that's really where that's going to be kind of the missing link i think going forward here for for teenagers and and young adults controlling the environment yeah, as best you can or in response to the environment. You know, tennis is always going to be a little stressful, but how my perspective, you know, the, the way we respond to these situations. I mean, if you think of our emotional response system, it's so antiquated. Right? This thing was locked in a place tens of thousands of years ago when, when you know, we were, we were not a complex society like we are. Evolution just can't keep up. So the fear that we feel in a, in a, in a close tennis match is not really commensurate to the fear that, you know, you may have felt, you know, when a tiger's coming for you or you're about to be attacked. Yeah, it depends, yeah, it depends how many match points you're down. Right? <laughs> you know, but, you know, and, and somehow we, we survived these matches, you know, so the anxiety and the stress that we're constantly under to perform and to and to get ahead i think there's a way to mitigate that through perspective and mindfulness and, and just really working right from the first ball to the last ball and keeping kids you know i use the analogy we, you know we brush our teeth every day not because we're trying to get, get our teeth healthier we're just trying to protect them from from the weird things that can happen what about if we did that every day with our with our with our mindfulness and our meditation and our mental health Wake how, do up you, and how do you suggest doing that I got that's my next program. It's coming out right now, <laughs> and it's a kick Kickstarter. Right? It's a Kickstarter. Yeah, we just got this thing going. I've got a. It's very ambitious. I hope I'm not biting off too much. It's going to be, but you know, I think I'm going to write another book about this. I got a series of essays I'll be putting out this year. Uh, I'm going to have a website with a bunch of produced videos. I'd love to talk to you and get some skill your acting skills in there. I need some, you know, when the kind of the skeleton key is how do we get this complex research oriented stuff to children to kids so they can grab it you know and i think we the more we can kind of humanize this stuff and not make it some, you know, some research abstract from a university where they, you know, very few people can understand that stuff um so trying to bring it down to the level so they understand you know core levels of what they're you know identifying your emotions and being able to walk them back and understand how you're feeling because if you're just constantly being you know assaulted by negative emotions and they just metastasize to your system you know you're going to struggle there's just no you know by the time you realize you have a problem it's too late that stuff's really affecting your life and stuff so i think a real strong emphasis on prevention and awareness in this space could really go a long way and they're doing this in schools now you know in younger age. yeah is there I, something that is there something that you would tell your 17 or 18 year old self if you can go back right now what would you say Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, that's, this is, you know, and that's really been the, the, the driving force behind this. I mean, as I, as I put this whole thing together, I just, there's so many times I'll just stop like, God, if I had something like this available to me when yeah. I was younger, yeah. you know, and I just, I just, there's just no way, not only would have not a lot of the difficult things have happened to me in my life and my family and so forth, but just, I would have been able to see my talents through, you know, I mean, not that I was going to, you know, I wasn't going to be playing the second week of any majors or anything like that, but a lot of meaningful tennis didn't get played, you know, and to put, invest so much of your life in something and just not get the proper return on it and end up, you know, kind of empty and devastated at the end of it. Um, you know, that's just, it doesn't have to be that way. So yeah, there's a lot of things. I love to talk to my 14 year old self too. <laughs> how is, how has family life helped you in the whole journey, you know, writing the book, staying sober? Yeah, gosh, you know, I'm I spreading the good message. I came here to Nashville to to start to kind of settle down a little bit. I was going by coastal. I was in LA and New York is kind of doing summer jobs and teaching and back and forth. And then uh, came out here to start an academy with another gentleman here. And then uh, 
met a gal here who uh, needed a guy, and Let's she go uh, Southern Belle. Is that what they call? She's she's from Iowa, but she oh. landed in Nashville. Midwestern Belle, bro. Four, Midwestern Belle. There you go, Midwestern Belle. Exactly. She got four beautiful children, all grown. We got two pugs and a grandbaby. They're all coming into town tonight, and it's been a real. You know, it, it gets me out of myself. You know, I, I'm I'm responsible to others, and it's just kind of filled. You know, filled a, filled something that was missing in my life for a long time. So new good. journey every day is that kind of yes. what you feel? Okay, absolutely. Yeah, no, no, no. It's good. You know, so we we got a good just a good groove going here, and it's very healthy. And uh, yeah, I just couldn't be happier. This is great, Barry. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. For those of you who uh, didn't didn't get the intro, Barry and I met on a podcast probably like a, a month ago through uh, one of my old tennis coaches and I found his story to be super inspiring. You guys can get the book on Amazon. It's like 25 bucks. Great read. I actually need to, uh, I probably need to finish this book, but I was bouncing around reading chapters, man. Barry, where can we find you uh, online? Where's the Kickstarter? Uh, just kind of plug yourself, man. Yeah. So Barry Bus, come to, come to Facebook, come to Instagram. Those are the two places I hang out the most. Uh, I'm very active there. I think my accounts are open, so you don't need to to jump in. Um, and yeah, we're going to be real active with this going forward. I got a lot of exciting stuff coming up here. Um, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but it's a lot of things in the works. And uh, I'm going to definitely want to talk to you when we're done here and uh, maybe employ your your acting skills. And, Would uh... love to, bro. Any character <laughs> you need, man. I'm, I'm your guy. I'm your guy. Barry, this is really, this is really a great time, man. Have an amazing weekend with the family, and we'll talk soon, all right? Thank you, Ted. Thank you, man.